0: are here, and I'm back in the 11FS office in WeWork, Gate for episode 63 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto, and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Coinbase ETF, the Winklevoss twins make a stablecoin, or oh, it sounds like they did something really rude, uh, and chickens on a blockchain, all this and more on today's show.
1: <laughs>
0: As you can tell, Guess is Back. Back again, Colin. platt <laughs> Tell a friend. <laughs> you forgot the G. Yeah, but like it doesn't work with the rhyming signature. I was trying to tell producer petrick that it, you've got to make this rhyme. Look, I told you it was a shit line. You. Guys. <laughs> it was not a shit line. Any hip hop reference is absolutely okay. How well, are you? Sir?
1: Definitely better than football references. Mm, we'll see about that. So we'll see about that. How's life near your field? Uh, warm. I came here and I I heard it's gonna rain tomorrow. Where it's like thirty degrees back home. Like, I'm not sure why I'm here. Are things growing in your field with all that warmth, or is it scorched earth? Well, not quite. It's still, you know, beautiful, abundant Val-de-Loire. We have lots of wine, and it is fantastic.
0: Uh, I don't trust anything you're saying. We're joined by (laughs) Ville Did I say your name right? Nope. Uh, (laughs) 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 We're joined by this guy. (laughs) Do you want to say your name away from...
2: Sure. So, yeah, I'm Ville that's the way you pronounce it uh it's like the same thing okay (laughs) fair enough I'll give you a pass on that. I work for Nordia Bank. I'm the head of emerging technologies, which happens to include DLT and blockchain.
0: Exciting times. All right, let's crack on with the first story. Uh, first one comes from businessinsider.com. Headline of the day goes to this one, I think. Coinbase is exploring a crypto ETF, comma, and it has sought help from $6 trillion Wall Street giant BlackRock. Apparently, Coinbase is looking to create an exchange-traded product tied to crypto as a way to allow retail investors to gain access to a volatile market. The firm in recent weeks has helped come Conversations with members of BlackRock's blockchain working group, Jesus, that's hard to say, to tap into the firm's expertise at launching exchange traded products. Um, it remains unclear whether the talks were one off or a part of ongoing conversations between Coinbase and BlackRock. BlackRock representatives from the working group declined to comment. Uh, this headline, let's just deconstruct it a little bit. Because I, I can believe that Coinbase is exploring a crypto ETF, full stop.
2: I can also believe that BlackRock has a blockchain working group. So
0: yeah. That's something. Those those two things appear to be true. And I think that comma was well placed. Yeah. Th- these things being connected, though, all in one headline,
1: imply that there's more to it than meets the eye, which I don't think there is. Yeah. We we were talking about this before the show. Like We've been in this for a little while, and it feels like the headlines that came out in 2014, where it's like, this one guy from something that's kind of remotely Bitcoin related showed up at a bank and had lunch with a guy, and somebody found out about that. And then that means that automatically Barclays is now buying Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm.
0: And it's Business Insider doing it. That's that's kind of the really alarmist thing here. Like, I mean, I know they're not the bastion of like amazing headlines. We throughout. love you, Frank. <laughs> but like Come on, guys. There's got to be something better going on here. I mean, I don't think BlackRock has any real interest in the short term of being heavily involved. uh, But it it makes sense that Coinbase would look for expertise in how to create an ETF from the monster fund factory that
1: is um, BlackRock. That sounds like some sort of metal album from the 80s. But let's just take a step back. The SEC has repeatedly said no to ETFs. and, And it's really clear why. They don't control the underlying markets and they don't want to like give away control to some unknown Chinese exchange that doesn't really do KYC, doesn't really make sure there's no market manipulation. Doesn't participate in market surveillance. And make it easy. Like, why would they? Just because BlackRock or Coinbase is involved doesn't necessarily give them the comfort of doing these things. And I don't think that they're going to review their decision in any meaningful way unless it's a very, very strictly institutional-focused ETF that isn't even marketed to retail clients. And if they're retail clients, go to an exchange. Go to Coinbase and just buy your damn Bitcoin.
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, the question is, why? I mean, why, why would you launch a product like this? I mean, you know, the only reason really is that, you know, people are looking for... Getting rich with the speculative value, I guess. I mean, that would be my uh, my kind of takeaway from it. Because, you know, the people who would be buying this ETF, they are not the crypto people. I mean, they're not buying ETFs. I mean, they are the people who are generally unaware of what's actually, you know, underneath that instrument. So, yeah, don't really like it. I would like to see more regulatory clarity before, you know, we start offering these kind of products for uh, for the general population. But um, yeah, maybe talking to BlackRock is, uh, is a step towards the direction, who knows?
1: I, I think what's going to happen way before an ETF is just like a straight up structured product, MTN, coming out from a European bank, going to private bank investors to say, look, you want upside on Bitcoin, Ether, whatever it is, we're going to sell you some option on top of that thing in, an, in a five year note, collateralized with Bitcoin we got sitting in the back, um, and you're just going to fund the bank. Speaking of exchange-traded notes,
0: uh, the next story comes from Coindesk.com and the SEC has suspended an exchange-traded Bitcoin and Ether investment vehicle um, that sought to apparently appeal to the US public markets investors looking for crypto exposure. So the SEC, again, has issued an order seeking to suspend the trading of Bitcoin Tracker 1 and ETH Tracker 1 or Ether Tracker 1 um, exchange-traded notes issued by XBT provider AB, a Swedish-based subsidiary jury of the UK firm Coinshares Holdings the SEC cited confusion amongst market participants based in the US as to the nature of the financial instruments as the reason for the move what are they confused about like I, I didn't understand this one.
2: Well, X- XBT actually uh, made a, a announcement on this topic because you know they're listed in Nasdaq in Sweden. Uh, mm-hmm. These ETFs, so they did make an announcement that is not going to affect their uh, position in the, in the Swedish exchange, yep. and that the reason for this uh, quote-unquote confusion was the fact that they were not the ones who actually listed this instrument. They said that it was broker de- broker dealers in this uh, in the U.S. markets that actually listed them, yep. and uh, therefore they are not liable for you know providing this information to the U.S. Uh, regulatory authorities, so SEC. So, yeah, maybe the dog ate their homework or I don't know.
1: Sounds like that. I mean, it wasn't this one. I don't think it's even backed. I think that XBT just wrote a swap that underlies this thing, which is either in I think there's one in Swedish Krona and one in euros where basically they just convert the the US uh, dollar price at like five different exchanges into those two currencies and then they back it out but it's just a swap that's written on those things and I think it's Quanto. So it's like kind of a complicated product so I could understand why they don't want to put it in and then sell it back to US dollar investors. And maybe
0: that's where the confusion comes on because investors, especially retail, might might struggle with that. It's also interesting as well that to, to that quote that comes out of XPT Provider sort of saying, look, um, if some brokers picked up and ran with this, we didn't necessarily uh, encourage that so we're, we're not unhappy about it. It's, it's one of those where the headline sounds a lot scarier um, but it, you know, this is one of those things where you could almost see bitcoin sort of seeping in through little pockets of daylight into the u.s markets and the sec is playing whack-a-mole with it a little bit trying to just make sure that doesn't happen all right next story uh, comes from cointelegraph.com uh, crypto exchange shapeshift to gradually introduce a membership program, which I thought was an interesting name. Um, so they've announced a new rewards program, which will eventually become mandatory membership for uh, the Exchange users. Eric Voorhees, the founder and CEO, stated that uh, the Exchange released a loyalty program called ShapeShift membership. Per the statement, the program is currently optional, although will become mandatory as and as it requires the provision of basic personal information. This is KYC dressed up, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people got really upset because Eric Voorhees, uh, is one of the original, like, OGs in Bitcoin, you know, always fighting against the man and this and that. And he's like, he's an American citizen that lived in Panama for a while. And I think he's back in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it was like, let's just say related to, um, problems with the irs allegedly allegedly so to come back and and set this shape shift up which a lot of people let's be very honest we're using this for uh similar purposes to those alleged allegations they're kind of seeing this as like eric's now in in cahoots with the man uh somebody will stand up and take their place and i'm going to go ahead and bet it's going to be decentralized like a dex of some sort that will take over
2: yeah interestingly enough you know local bitcoins you know this finnish uh marketplace for peer-to-peer bitcoin uh, trades effectively they had a similar thing i mean they they actually went in for registrations for you know high volume customers and they got kind of bashed into me in the uh in the crypto sphere uh for doing that and you know of course, you know their volumes have gone went down after that. I mean, you can always say that you know it's a bear market, so maybe that's part of the reason as well. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see you know whether this uh, you know loyalty uh, for your KYC is uh, is going to fly uh, in the in their customers.
0: The regulators are coming, and um, it appears that uh, the the main motivator here is avoiding jail uh, because the consequence of operating a money service business in the U.S. that doesn't uh, perform KYC is actually jail. Um, so there's a pretty clear motivation. Um, I, I do like the way that they've tried to uh, craft this uh, message, though, which says, um, there are apparently requests of many of their users who would like to have account-related features, transaction history, whitelist addresses, email notifications, an increasing interest in the broad phenomenon of tokenization, and to bring liquidity of various aspects of the business-customer relationships, building loyalty programs in which the engagement between a business and customers itself can become an asset. And then, uh, the practice of requiring customers to hand over personal private information is one we've struggled with since inception to the extent that digital asset technology remains a legal gray area we need to be prudent and thoughtful in our approach as we navigate the regulatory environment let me go ahead and translate that plausible deniability Mm. (laughs) so i do want to hold a candle for uh, i don't think that privacy is necessarily a bad thing Um, and the way in which we've dealt with uh, market surveillance in the past has been to invalidate your privacy it was a blunt instrument but it's sort of Well, it didn't work, frankly. Uh, The UN estimates that of the $2 laundered every year, uh, we detect about 2% of that money laundering, and we go ahead and raise a suspicious activity report against 2% of the 2%. So invalidating your privacy is ineffective. So there is a a clear uh, opportunity for something better, but I don't think the answer to that is uh, extensively and uh, intentionally flouting the rules. This
1: is kind of like making you take your shoes off at the airport in the U.S. or not bringing liquids through the airports everywhere else in the world. Yeah. Like, yeah, it probably stops those, those attack vectors. Um, and, you know, well, we'll notice the day we're recording this thing on uh, as we talk about it. But, like, at the end of the day, it's, it's a political move, right? Yeah. So follow the law. I mean, it's good that they're doing that so they're not going to jail. Like, it's good that Eric Voorhees is, is making a, a good business decision on this. And I see why people are upset. Um, the, the problem is fundamentally political. Um and maybe we should go at, at- working with... I
0: I, I don't know if it's just political. I think it's lack of education. Uh, I think that the valid alternatives to invalidating your privacy in order to prevent money laundering and terrorist financing are not well understood and they could be better understood and there's an education opportunity that's missing. And that to me is the real um, kind of bright spot here. And it's the interesting thing that the early companies and the early entrants to the kind of the crypto sphere seemed very adversarial to the existing uh, kind of incumbent regulatory and policymakers and governments. Whereas actually, humanity broadly shares the same sort of principles. We don't want to get blown up. We would like to keep living. I mean, some of you might not – that might not be the case. But if if you want to prevent um, money laundering and bad actors – then we've got to f- that's the problem. That's the outcome we're trying to get to. But the solution doesn't have to always be the same solution. We don't necessarily have to use uh, using a paper driver's license and paper address information as being the only route to that goal. There may be other routes to that goal. And I think articulate ways of constructing that narrative are probably the better next step rather than sticking your middle finger up at every regulator that comes across. My two cents. I'll get off my soapbox.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a broader question here of, of privacy in general. I mean, you know, do people really want privacy? And you know the ones that do, you know, why do they want it? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of noise made about privacy. But, you know, for example, if you look at uh, Zcash or Zcash, I should say, here in UK. Oh, uh, Zcash, that's uh, right Z, it's Yeah, saying. let's just go with Zcash. <laughs> so uh, 0.1%, 0, 0.3% of the transactions are actually private. So, you know, the shield to shield wallet uh, type of transactions. So 99.7% is uh you know, willingly or optionally being opted out as as public transactions. So I don't think that there's that much there uh, in terms of, you know, uh, demand for privacy. Uh,
0: You say that, but also if you look at the YouGov surveys of uh, attitudes of 18 to 34-year-olds, 25% of them, according to this YouGov survey, have deleted Facebook and the 18 to 34-year-old demographic. 50% of them have taken a one-month break from Facebook. And the number one reason was privacy concerns. Uh, I do think privacy concerns amongst consumers are there. Uh, I think there's a lack of trust that is real. But the sophistication of the consumer to be able to deal with that and use the tools that allow them to be private, there may be a gap. So I, I don't know that the demand is missing. I think that the supply of solutions that solve the problem may be missing.
2: Yeah, fair enough. I,
1: I look at it slightly differently. I I think personally that cryptocurrency mainstream cryptocurrencies that we hear a lot about really only make sense in like a semi apocalyptic situation it's it's a fat tail um banks blow up or you know the uk or the us government turns into venezuela like that's why you're buying these things right if that happens bitcoin's going to be worth a stupid amount of money right? but you said something interesting at the beginning of your sentence as they exist today as they exist today and i think as they will continue to exist mm. i don't see cryptocurrencies like pull out things that aren't cryptocurrencies like XRP and some of these other things where they can be co-opted more easily um or moving C- CBDC into DLT type things uh, CBDC into DLT Yes uh we know what DLT is I hope um but uh central bank digital currencies putting pounds putting dollars onto let's say R3 Corda we love R3 um those those things could make things more efficient quicker. And that's that's a lot of what we talk about in the enterprise blockchain space. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about cryptocurrencies, the things are damn expensive because we burn up a lot of electricity to make sure these things are decentralized. If we... Move that assumption back and say, well, you know, we can put KYC, we can put everything else on top of it. Then you're just paying a really big premium for something that you don't actually use. So, so if you're going to you use not that, why? why the arguments
0: are all um, like the DFINITY argument, the A16Z argument that says that these things are slow and clunky now, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be like that forever.
1: I think that there's a reason they're slow and clunky. And I've spent a lot of time this summer looking at why they're slow and clunky. And I am 100% convinced that they will be slower and clunkier. And I think Vitalik Buterin just said something the other day. Mm-hmm that he agrees with me as well so go figure (laughs) wow
0: i think Vitalik feels to be having a bit of a crisis of faith at the moment in in the middle midst of the bear market um but uh god bless Vitalik, and uh god bless all three our sponsors um time to get the cheap plug-in um today's shill baby shill oh yeah (laughs) yeah shill 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 today's episode of blockchain insider is brought to you by r3 um apparently though they said blockchain's not just for financial services you can you can use a blockchain sitting near a field colin I definitely have used an R3 Corda blockchain or DLT more specifically next to a field. Apparently, they say a bunch of other industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, could the wine industry... I I sure hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope so, too. Uh, Discover the potential for your business with the R3 Corda blockchain platform. Um, They uniquely offer privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall, BAF, right in your face.
1: BAF. That's actually
2: new. I haven't heard about that. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. They announced it a little while ago, I think it's uh, oh, part that. of
2: the enterprise package i think they went out with it in july i think
1: i didn't show that for the enterprise package <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that's the stuff you gotta buy that that's you gotta it. pay for um but it's not censorship resistant is it
0: no <laughs> um neither is this podcast <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> or their sponsorship up there
0: <laughs> uh the corner platform blockchain for every business in every industry head over to r3.com for more info and speaking of
1: r3 this is my favorite story i'll just go <laughs> have this one whoopee r3 is now a bag holder of xrp (laughs) (laughs) r3 and ripple labs have apparently reached a settlement agreement on their token litigation so we followed this a little bit um over the last year or so Mm -hmm. where r3 apparently had done some work with with ripple labs the company and as part of this uh ripple labs of their many many billions and billions of xrp tokens said hey we're going to write you an option for really cheap uh i think like zero point uh, zero zero eight five dollars i i guess less than a penny back at the time when they were worth less than a penny uh now they're worth what 25 cents or so 25 35 something it'll like be that. up or down 40 percent from where we are by the time this thing gets released on thursday and by the time you listen to it friday so apparently five billion of these things were were on the table um there was some litigation where ripple Labs said that r3 didn't fulfill uh r3 said yes they did you can't terminate this contract fast forward a year they have just now announced that they're going to settle after lots of lawsuits fine, left, right, and center. I don't know if they – we don't know how much they got out of this. I would imagine it's probably not all $5 billion. I see somebody that probably does know but isn't going to be able to tell us um, sitting across the table. We won't push you on it. Um, but, you know, fantastic. I think this is good for everybody regardless of what you think about the whole case. Ripple can move move forward with not having this thing on on top of them. XRP holders uh, by extension because this is 5% of all the outstanding XRP in existence potentially um, and R3 potentially has a new round of funding <laughs>
0: there go your funding problems boys <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh. we
0: look forward to renewing, you're
1: renewing the sponsorship here <laughs> <laughs> oh God bless! Yeah, I think him. everybody
2: just wanted, wanted to move on. I mean, you know, if you look, if you look at the kind of price uh, development during this time of this litigation, you know, it's been going, you know, to a certain direction uh, in terms of XRP price, and you know, you know, suddenly maybe it just wasn't worth it to continue this whole conversation and
0: to say sensible things. I think both businesses are in a position where they're seriously focusing on they've got a lot to execute they've got a lot to deliver they've got clients who want to see the end product working um and they've got to ship code and they've got to make things work and and this allows them to focus on that It's one less distraction
2: yeah and a bit of the same thing with ripple as well i guess you know they have uh you know bigger things to worry about right now than uh, the litigation.
0: yeah so. Definitely class action lawsuits that we've covered in the past. Um, speaking of Ripple. Um, <laughs> speaking of bigger problems to worry about. Yeah, uh, um, Quartz.com, Ripple's general counsel has left the company at an awkward time. So, um, a series of vowels um, that I'm going to pronounce. I think it's Welsh. Yeah, no. Villa, do you want to go this
2: one? No, no, it's a Finnish.
0: B R Y N L Y. L-L-Y-R. Brinley? Brinley
1: Lear, I believe, is how you pronounce that.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, did they leave just because they have a name that's impossible for
1: anybody to say? <laughs> and you just watch some... for the announcement that she's going to be working at 11FS in like three weeks. Oh, right? no, please don't do this to me. <laughs>
0: uh we're grateful for all that she did to help build an incredible team a ripple spokesperson says we wish this person whose name shall not be said by my lips all the best in her next endeavor and the team here at ripple looks forward to the next chapter where we'll continue to pave the way in this ever evolving and uncharted industry i wonder does this story and the previous story have any link um ripple labs reaches an agreement with r3 consortium and uh legal counsel leaves
1: well, there's also that big, you know, hammer sitting over the top of uh, XRP potentially being considered a security tied to Ripple Labs, the company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few headwinds out there uh, for Ripple. We talked but about they've hired some point.
0: heavy hitter former SEC folks, haven't they? And I think, like, if you look at the caliber of people they've hired recently, they've they've really gone out for people who know what they're doing.
1: And it could be just, you know, like uh, moving around inside the company and she didn't see a way to advance and wanted to move on. I didn't give a reason. It sounded like everybody happen, happened to say very little, which is, I think they say in the legal terms, generally when you say very little is, is worse than saying bad things at all. Yeah, so we'll see.
0: Indeed. Getting future endeavoured. Uh, next story comes from dr.co, uh, which if you're not, Uh, aware of dr.co d-i-a-r.co excellent excellent publication well worth taking a look at Uh, and this one comes from uh, tim swanson um, around the evolving language of decentralized financial market infrastructure colin what's financial market infrastructure and what's decentralization got to do with it
1: well that's a good question yeah (laughs) (laughs) so financial markets infrastructure are the things that sit behind banks that make banks work (laughs) Um, so we talk a lot about how you know cryptocurrencies are going to affect banks what we really should be talking about is what happens at one step removed from what we understand so financial markets infrastructure in general are composed of all the little bits and bobs that happen after we do trading can i just give a shout out for using the term bits and bobs on a podcast yes that has to be the first time we've used it on this podcast although sarah finan you never know (laughs) Um, so they include things like uh, central clearing counterparties or ccps or clearinghouses Um, they include things like payment services like things that look like swift
0: yeah <laughs> uh, but also so this would be cbo cme new york stock exchange
1: no. not quite parts of what they do uh definitely not SIBO, but occ uh which is the clearinghouse would fit into this definition yep. what happens at the exchange is covered by a whole nother set of regulations Ooh. so where that happens and you can read my blog about this uh, a couple of weeks ago So
0: this would be the difference between lch and uh, london stock exchange
1: so this would be all in the same group in this case, uh, yeah. which is where it gets confusing. But yes, this would be the LCH, the London Clearinghouse mm-hmm. part of that. Uh, but it also includes things like CSDs. Mm-hmm. So Kim's argument is essentially DLT, the term or distributed ledger technology, all started with a uh, marketing hype coming from our big favorite consultancies. Shout out Ajit Tripathi, mm-hmm. um, talking and about something they didn't really understand and saying, hey, come buy cool DLT because it's blockchain without this annoying Bitcoin thing in it. I, I think that there's Still, a lot of validity in calling these things distributed ledger technologies rather than moving to DFMIs or decentralized FMIs because a lot of the times we're not talking about financial. We, we talked in our little Corda ad, a lot of these things happen outside of financial transactions. Mm-hmm. So if we're using them for non financial transactions, I don't necessarily agree with Tim here saying, let's call these things decentralized FMIs because they look a lot like FMIs. They operationally in the financial markets infrastructure have a lot of similar things. But likewise, uh if we just set up a bank to bank type setup, we might be doing something of just tracking um servicing payments of a retail mortgage, which doesn't actually require
2: a financial markets infrastructure. Yeah. Well, I mean maybe you could look at this as like DLT from a banking perspective. I mean you know ultimately what a uh, very narrow
1: uh, subset of it.
2: Kinda, you know, depends a little if you read I mean I read the article the way I actually read it is that you know it's a kind of an evolution of DLT, you know, we kind of you know got tired of it and you know it starts to slipping down on the Gartner height curve. So you need something else to talk about. So let's uh let's use the DFMI. I mean it has a, even a small D in the front, which yes. look makes makes it look cooler than you know the old one with the capital D. So yeah, it's a new name for, you know, basically Actually, what we're doing at banks, you know, because a lot of it, you know, is really boring stuff, and you know, DFMI might actually be an accurate term from that from that perspective because we deploy a new type of technology used in a uh, to basically make more effective financial infrastructure. Yeah. That's the way we use it now. If you want to rename that work as DFMI, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I just want
1: to call it really boring stuff. We yeah, should it's give that an acronym. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sex and violence of financial market infrastructure, so.
0: No, you you just rebrand it to NatWest and then you're fine.
1: Oh, I'm sure we can come up with a a acronym for that.
0: (laughs) All right. uh, Next story um, comes from CNBC. Um, The Goldman Sachs CFO says the bank is working on a Bitcoin derivative for clients. So, uh, Martin Chavez uh, called a report that the bank was ditching plans to launch a cryptocurrency trading desk fake news. He looked to knock down the report about banking, dialing back plans, but also make clear that there's never been a timeline for this effort. Um, So the quote, comes from him and he said, I thought I would never hear myself use this term, but I really have to describe this news as fake news. The next stage of exploration is what we call non-deliverable forwards. Um, these are over-the-counter derivatives. They're settled in U.S. dollars, and the reference price is the Bitcoin U.S. dollar price established by a set of
1: exchanges. So like the CME future. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that financial innovation there.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> th- there was a real pushback about um, kind of uh, – Making those available from some of the big banks for a while. There was a lobbying. Uh, when Sammy first announced it, there was kind of a real pushback, especially from the clearing banks. Like JP Morgan did not seem
1: happy with it. Uh, Goldman moving in this direction, I think, is, is reasonable progress. But can we just point out like cash settled futures or NDFs, which are kind of one and the same here on cryptocurrencies, are a really dumb idea. Like they're super capital intensive if you're trying to trade these things and you can't even hedge against the underlying. Mm. None of them are going to take off until we can actually physically settle into cryptocurrencies yeah, and margin in cryptocurrencies. Yeah. That's why BitMEX, aside from having, let's say, 100, 100x leverage on these things and and less onerous KYC procedures uh that let you go out to any retail investor anywhere in the world because they're set up in the Seychelles. Hey, that's cool. Shout out to Arthur Hayes there. That's why they tend to have a lot more business than these major brands we hear about because they just make more financial sense.
0: Yeah. Well, doesn't the CME require 30% collateral upfront on some of these things? And so that's really expensive compared to other asset classes. So yeah, it would make sense that you do it in the nature, in the natural class.
2: Yeah. I mean, they, they basically take a step back here. I mean, you know, moving from a trading desk into, into an instrument like this is a, is a, you know, a step back. Clearly, you know, so they're they're messaging that, you know, yes, we're looking at this space. Uh, we're aware what's going on and uh, we're going to see if there's anything tradable there.
1: And I think a lot of people had just assumed when this news first came out that Goldman Sachs was actually going to be out making purchases of Bitcoin. The underlying yeah. spot. And um, people noted when this came out, I think Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies dropped in the realm of 10% in one day. And then when they said, oh, yes, it's fake news, we're going to do this, it only came up like 2 3%. And they said, oh, well, why is that happening? Obviously, you know, when it's a bear market, bad news sells better than good news. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's almost
0: like... There's this whole like whirlwind of headlines and half-truths that then seem to either A, massively correlate to the price, or B, completely don't correlate to the price, which you can see why if you step back from that, the regulators think this looks a lot like market manipulation and pump and dump, But even in Bitcoin. Do you think that's what's going on, or can you see why it at least looks that way, to the unsophisticated eye?
2: We are not allowed to trade in crypto, so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, uh, so my, my take on it is I, I think that that's quite normal in a lot of different assets. Um, there, there's a big general thing, which is the market's view and like how it feels about these things and all this touchy, feely, like psychological stuff. People are selling this stuff because there is no future for a lot of it. Like 98% of it, if not more, is dead. Uh, it makes no sense. It will die. It'll go to zero or very close to zero. Um, and some of them, i'm wearing my centrist shirt again today i have already done it although it still hasn't gone to zero bizarrely (laughs) just like bitconnect still above zero bizarrely (laughs) yeah that can tell you something about this market but when everybody feels bad it doesn't really matter what happens with the news but we see this in stocks as well like Mm -hmm. in 2008 and early 2009 you could have good news coming out you could be saying you know look the dollar's down so we're selling more stuff to china okay great um but it was still late 2008, early 2009. It didn't matter. Because prevailing market sentiment
0: is prevailing market sentiment regardless of and the that, news. And that's
1: what it is. So, like, I think if you look at it, you have to get down to really a micro level of when these things come out and look at what happened in the order books to say whether market manipulation is there. Mm-hmm. But I think people that are looking at these big numbers and saying market up and down 20%, 30% market manipulation, that's not how market manipulation generally works. It's those, like, ticks. It's that, you know, basis point movement That happens a little bit too early or a little bit too late, that is market manipulation, and that's people getting in or out Mm -hmm. around news. And it's not the market moving up or down. You're not jumping off the, the top of a waterfall and riding it all the way down because you manipulated the market. You're just trying not to hit the rock as you come down.
0: Do they know it? Uh, Next story comes from Forbes.com. Apparently, enterprise blockchain struggles to carve out a niche. Enterprise blockchain uh, is at the bottom. DFMIs. The (laughs) DFMIs. Yeah, it was at the bottom of the hype cycle you just said. This is over. Like, you should... If part of what you're doing you you're manipulating doing the market now uh, simon
1: uh, yeah. <laughs> talking it down fun
2: <laughs> no but this is the regular evolution right you know if uh, we were quite the banks in 2015 really started looking into this space we moved quite quickly from bitcoin to blockchain to dlt and now to dfmi and obviously as we go along you know people get bored uh, it's a bear market uh, it kind of has uh, imprints it's uh, kind of uh, to what we're doing as well even though it's completely different i mean the enterprise blockchain space is completely separated uh, from from these uh, crypto markets but ultimately people working in this space like myself I mean we don't really care we, we know it's boring we know you know we're gonna have to wait for the kind of really big uh, results to come out and ultimately when they come out people won't even notice that it's actually using blockchain tech or dlt necessarily so uh it's almost by design uh, i think you know the uh, as we're kind of heading down the hype curve a lot of the noise will go away uh, and you know you've heard me saying in the past that i actually consider that like almost like a good thing because you know that that kind of uh, takes away a lot of this uh, you know n- people making a lot of noise about now and then you can actually focus on delivering uh, actual services. So, yeah, I think uh, it is true. We are, you know, we're down on the hype curve, uh, but it's, uh, it's a good thing.
0: When do you stand on the long-term prospects for enterprise blockchain, Colin? Is, is, is it dead as a doornail
1: or is it just quietly there and shipping? Well, I think a lot of it makes sense if you start looking at how you fundamentally overhaul the way you do business and maybe what your business is. hmm mm-hmm. That said, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's massively, massively oversold. Uh, When you get... Oh, I saw some statistic from one of the big consultancies that'll go unnamed saying, you know, like 87% of oil and gas companies understood or had experts in their organization on blockchain. You said, right, we haven't quite reached that trough of despair here um, or whatever it is. There's still a lot of people that think they understand this stuff where they haven't even really started to understand it. They just maybe read a Tapscotch book. That's one good thing. It's very much your point. When this stuff gets boring is when stuff gets done. Like nobody gets excited about building a new website because it's, going to fundamentally change everything people might get excited about the features but not the fact that you're building a website generally people go oh why do you have to build a website Why do you have to do all this stupid stuff in the background like just website it like it doesn't need all of this like fancy elaboration they're more concerned about like what colors the background
0: this is typical for a um, technology development you see this initial hype and then you see the hype go away and people get on with building stuff but what are people actually building like what what's it tangibly going to mean
2: well, I mean, a few tangible things. I mean, my favorite, of course, I was earlier in the podcast this year talking about WeTrade, of course, so no need to repeat those. Uh, what we're doing there. It's basically a trade finance network uh, for uh, for SMEs or uh, SMBs, I guess, uh, small small uh, companies anyway. And we're launching that in Europe. So, it's again, it's a it's fairly narrow scope uh, solution uh, for a narrow, narrow audience as well. Uh, but it's a, it's a clear proposition where we, where we see, you know, DLT uh, bringing value into the solution.
0: But DLT brings value into the solution how versus using tech that already existed?
2: Uh, well, well, the first step, of course, is that, you know, finally, we're able to get all the banks sitting around the same table, figuring out how to build common infrastructure. I mean, that's a very tangible result. Now, going forward, then you start to kind of uh, cut off certain kind of clear principles of blockchain. So basically it becomes permissioned, it becomes cloud based, at least initially. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you start to make these compromises. But that's the way tech works. I mean, you know, ultimately, you kind of come to this minimum viable uh, solution, like we trade now is, which we launched now in June, uh, by the way, into production. So we have actually actual people trading on the network right now. And uh, yeah, that's the the way technology kind of uh, uh, evolves. But Coming back to your point on the uh, this blockchain as a hype term and, you know, how people in the, these organizations, especially banks, they thought that, you know, well, they were actually told that blockchain is going to solve all the problems in the world. There was this weird, weird kind of alternative universe, uh, in a way, uh, where, you know, everybody thought that the blockchain is going to replace all the intermediaries and, you know, you just replace trust with technology that you don't really understand. And... Uh, the bank's kind of obvious reaction to those, uh, that, that kind of hype was that, okay, we're just going to say no until we figure this thing out. And that's the way R3 came to be. But the other things that banks did, they also started first building their competence and they started b- bringing in people who understand this. So, uh, now the banks are actually say, are able to say no, but so, you know, they are able to kind of move on from the position of, you know, a blockchain, you know, is going to cover all the problems in the world to say that, you know, no, it's actually not. So if we just insert things like proper governance models, risk controls, uh, understanding the transaction processes, uh, integrating that to the local uh, laws uh, in terms of uh, regulatory compliance and, and and consumer protections, you create a nice beautiful service. Uh, Nice,
0: beautiful service. And if you want to learn more about the nice, beautiful services, you're on episode uh, 28 of Blockchain Insider and you can check that out on iTunes now. Uh, Last major story for us this week is uh, from Bloomberg.com. The Winklevoss twins have received approval to launch a new regulated crypto coin. Uh, Great headline, Bloomberg. Crypto coin. So, uh, in fact, they're one of two technology companies that New York State has approved to issue currencies, uh, cryptocurrencies pegged to the U.S. dollar, creating more regulated and transparent competitors to Tether and so-called stable coins like MakerDAO and Basis and so on. Uh, the Gemini Trust Co. Digital Asset Exchange, um, founded by Cameron and Tyler, the Winklevoss twins, uh, received approval from the New York Department of Financial Services to, to launch the Gemini dollar, according to a statement on Monday. And Paxos Trust Co. Uh, has done similar, and they've issued the Paxos Standard, which is an interesting name. Um, the quotes from the Winklevoss um we don't think anyone's solving for the trust problem audits have been lacking in the market up to this point um shot across the bow of tether there and bitfinex Uh, existing stable coins were not meeting their needs and we could create a stable coin that did um what are your thoughts on this one colin
1: I think it's dumb. <laughs> like, I, I know a lot of people, including our good friend Preston Byrne, who generally hates most stable coins, has come out and said, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to sit back and, and let this one go. They're doing things right. And legally, I think they're doing things right. Um, the reason I think it's dumb is, is threefold. First is, I, I've got lots of reasons to think it's dumb. If you are putting out a KYC coin on a very expensive network like Ethereum, you're, you're basically just shooting yourself in the foot. And this is – Simon and I were having a discussion about this before. Um, like – and, and this, is, this is what we were saying earlier. Like, these things are expensive. Like, if it costs you 50 cents a dollar to make your transaction on the Ethereum network to move your ERC-20 token just to move a dollar, what does it actually cost in the banking system to send a transaction domestically? Less. A, yeah, a little a bit less. less. Yeah, a whole lot less. A whole lot less. Often free. <laughs> yes, the banks probably pay something in the background, but it's it's fractions of a penny, probably. Maybe a penny. Maybe. It's a whole lot cheaper than 50 cents or a dollar per transaction, per movement. Okay.
0: Locally, yeah.
1: Locally. First point. Second is with Paxos, Gemini, Circle doing this, I'm starting to notice a pattern here. If we're talking about having this decentralized network where we can all work together in the same protocol, and they're all using Ethereum. Wink, wink. Why do they all need to do it rather than doing what banks are trying to do? The ones that wouldn't collaborate and work together to try to come up with, actually, surprise, on Corda, they're trying to do this together as a utility. Uh, And who's commonly on this, is looking at a different approach to doing this with central banks. Why can't these new companies work together and say, well, we make our money elsewhere. Why do we need to make it on the financing side of these things and try to be banks ourselves or actually money market uh, fund providers? It's interesting
0: that you see a lot of this behavior from the newer market entrances. They want to be all things to all people. They want all of the value chain. Um, They're trying to be the winner-take-all platform, which is very much um, a VC thesis. But whether or not that continues and whether or not they go ahead and do this, I (laughs) – I do like the idea of if you see how tether moves between exchanges, it feels like it moves between borders and between uh, financial market intermediaries and exchanges really, really quickly and really, really cheaply. If this is sort of like a virtual tether, granted, one of them, Paxos, is definitely using Ethereum, so you have a cost element. But if it, if it looked and functioned and felt a lot more like tether, then it becomes basically the euro dollar, but done differently. Yeah. <laughs> but then the euro dollar done differently, that uh, is collateral at multiple venues, surely, or at least cash at multiple venues.
1: Let me, let me read you something. This comes to my third point. Commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. While the system works well, for most transactions, it suffers from the inherent weaknesses of trust-based business model. This is from the Bitcoin white paper. This is literally the first line in the introduction. You're reintroducing that by having Gemini, Paxos, Circle, Tether sitting behind that and saying, we need to trust these things in the background, or else what we're trading is just a really expensive IOU that we can't deliver on. But we started- if you're doing that, why do you need a blockchain? I don't think you do. I think you need a token. Yeah. I, but actually, the, I, I might- you need a balance is what you need. We need to move that balance. It's a C-note. We've done these things for years. It's just swapping payments back and forth. But
0: this is the classic, like, um, why do I need an iPhone? The Nokia does everything. Like, there's something about when entrepreneurs build something, they build it in a different way that the incumbent cannot understand and get their head around. And I want to be mindful of that cognitive bias. So, the, if you, the Nokia executives will tell you at length how similar every product they'd ever built is to the iPhone, how they had touch screens, how they were able to do mobile payments. And besides, it didn't even do pictures well, its camera was worse. And this is consistent um, with, you know, what, the Blockbuster guys were saying, like, yeah, sure, you can get your DVD through the post and have it three days later, or you can come and have it real time. So I, I do think what you're saying is that fundamentally we're ending up in the same place and you're going against the original principles. But if you look at what the Internet became versus what the original founders wanted it to be, those things do diverge. That doesn't mean that those new things that came along were wrong. And
1: I hear you, but we do have historical examples of this. This is a Panama dollar. This is a Scottish pound, Mm -hmm. not a fiver, Gary, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the Scottish pound in general. It is money sitting in an account, and we're moving it in a different form someplace else. Mm -hmm. PayPal's been doing that for years. I think it's Why different. Why do we need PayPal? <laughs> I think it's different.
0: I really do, because PayPal is fundamentally a closed network. Uh, and therefore, uh, that closed network does not operate with any sort of standard that I can, I can interact with. It has some APIs, but I need a legal relationship with them. And what you're saying, I believe, is, well, I need a legal relationship with Paxos. i need a legal relationship with Gemini. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know that that always has to be the case, right? So, so now we're back in Tether. I think there's something, no, the point I'm trying to make is something between the two, right? I think something between the two emerges. I think something that is less permission than there's only these one people that can provide you uh, KYC with there are these many providers of KYC or there is this network of KYC or there is this identity layer or this other capability over here that helps with that. It's a big if, but I don't think that um, them being centralized institutions obviates that there
1: wouldn't be anything else.
2: By the way, do we know if any of these stablecoin projects are actually applying for e-money licenses in in any jurisdictions? Because this is effectively e-money.
1: I think that the Gemini one has as a money transmitter under their trust license in in the state of New York. And I imagine Paxos. Yeah, because
2: the reason I ask, I I mean, I I used to work before I worked for a Nordic bank. Uh, I used to work uh, in the uh, area of mobile money for emerging markets. So I was deploying uh, mobile money solutions, which are effectively e-money solutions uh, for mobile operators uh, in emerging markets. And there, one of the key problems really was that you weren't able to send money from one operator network to another operator network. The only way you were able to do that is you basically went to an agent, got a cash out and then it, uh, the deposit from the cash on the other agent. So one of the things that we were looking at is that how do you actually allow uh, money to be sent from one mobile money system to another mobile money systems? And, you know, there were usually three ways of doing that. There was the, uh, mm-hmm. either you create a centralized uh, clearing entity uh, for actually a, a trusted entity in the middle to, to mm-hmm. facilitate for that, or you did bilateral integration and you have liquidity accounts on all the different systems. That's what they did in Tanzania with varying success. And then third, which is the, uh, let's build a, a DLT with a with a better asset uh, uh, network. Now, you can imagine that in emerging markets, uh, you know, New technology like DLT is uh, is uh, difficult to kind of get get a foot, but that's exactly what, for example, Gates Foundation is not trying to do uh, with the modular project. Yeah. So, so um, which is kind of Ripple in a different package. Uh, but again, well,
0: it's the interledger protocol, um, and it's a set of API standards, and they're intentionally not touching tokens, which is interesting about what Gates yeah. are doing. Uh, but it, but it, that does links to the point that I was actually trying to make is that this is uh, how do you represent value um, that's pegged to. Cash- held in an account somewhere that looks like um, a cryptographic token that represents that value. It's much more like e-money, but it acts and behaves almost as if it were tether, but you've got a regulatory framework around it. I do think the answer is somewhere in the middle. I think the telco example is almost perfect. I think Interledger protocol is probably an interesting part of that. And and to me, I, I... i've had a, a lot of people um sort of uh poo all of the work of uh, various organizations but i think interledger is still something that's really interesting um and w3c and and that collaboration could be could be something to watch listen we are running over time um and we've got to very quickly cover um a com story a major french soccer club plans to launch to its this. own cryptocurrency <laughs> we don't need to cover this Let's just let that hang for a second um, and move right on. Stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, Coindesk.com. Civic are going to spend $43 million in a token boost to boost user numbers. Okay, good for them. Um, They're going to
1: do your KYC for you.
0: Oh, right. Okay. That's not going to have a reliance issue. Um,
1: <laughs> Go back to our stablecoin discussion. Yeah. <laughs>
0: we will continue this on another podcast coindesk.com r3 rebuffed in an attempt to bid for settlement coin blockchain project um we'll we we'll, uh we'll get out the gladiatorial stuff for sarah and gandalf to, to go at each other yeah, we should get them together yeah <laughs> we should make that happen so what happened there guys crypto wipeout deepens to 640 billion as ether leads declines uh hug somebody and 6th uh, uh the blockchain chickens bringing the future to free range. That, that's really the only story we should have talked about. <laughs> the, the, one thing I will say with this article, um, there's a lot of pictures of chickens. <laughs>
2: <laughs> in different formats
1: there, there's no orca whales though
0: no there, there are alive chickens there are dead chickens there are curious chickens um, <laughs> have you noticed that a curious chicken Look, well, there's, that there's, chicken is curious tell me that chicken is not curious
1: I mean it's hungry it's in, in Guizal province I, I I like the story. I, I don't believe in the project. I like the story. And it's unfortunate that Petra managed to put this football thing in here. So we didn't have time to cover this amazing, amazing story.
2: I thought it was a soccer thing. Okay.
1: You know, they're not quite <laughs> kitties, but they are pretty
0: damn cute. They're not orcas. They're not kitties, but chickens. Chickens. Time for Tweet of the Week.
1: Tweet, 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 tweet.
0: It's the Tweet of the Week.
1: Tweet
2: of the Week.
0: Okay, the tweet of the week comes from Dan Heddle, and the quote here is, the British pound is the oldest fiat currency in existence at 317 years. Um, so I believe that makes Barclays older than the pound. The pound was originally defined as 12 ounces of silver. It's now worth less than 0.5% of its original value. In other words, the most successful long-standing currency in existence has lost 99.5% of its value.
1: Fund the pound, Simon, Fund the pound.
0: <laughs> I forgot to, uh, yeah, the French guy. Um... Any, any, any other comments?
2: Well, I think, I think he's trying to say that inflation is a bad thing and gold standard is the way to go. Uh, I think that's the underlying message here. But uh, I mean, to me, I mean, this discussion has been had so many times before, you know, is deflationary currency is good or bad? But, but uh,
1: how many people in 317 years have like, been like I'm going to just put this money in like a one pound note, just stick it there? i don't need this inflation right under the mattress that's the perfect place for my my five pounds i i don't think anyone's ever done that they've invested it and if you like if you cut this 12 ounces of silver last time i checked it was about 11 pounds an ounce so that's what 132 pounds yar yar uh if you invested two percent interest for 317 years that's about 530 pounds sounds slightly better to me so yay fiat invest that's why you do it huddle huddle
0: Indeed. Uh, This is the thing about holding cash. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Basic financial literacy appears to be missing from this tweet. Um,
1: (laughs) Hence why they're all supporting cryptocurrency. Indeed. Hyper-Bitcoinization.
0: Before we go, Colin caught up with Garrick Heilman, the head of research at blockchain.
1: I'm here with Garrick Heilman, uh, head of, got a few titles here for you. Head of research at blockchain, not blockchain insider or not the blockchain, but blockchain company. Co-founder of Mosaic advisor to the AAA Stablecoin, and you also do some research and teaching positions at uh, both the London School of Economics and Cambridge. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. So aside from from these uh, that I just rattled off, can you tell us a bit about what you do for uh, these different institutions and and companies?
3: Right. So, I mean, I've, you know, uh, mostly focused on research uh, since I got interested in crypto in 2011. Uh, I was during my PhD at the London School of Economics. I was studying currency black markets at the time and, uh, I learned about this thing called Bitcoin and I wondered what the heck is it. Uh, it's not illegal like, uh, the, the, the black market currencies I was doing research on. And so that really kind of set me down this, this rabbit hole, uh, to where we are today, where, uh, I've now, uh, moved, you know, beyond just simply doing research. I actually have my hands in a, a few projects as well in the space. And as a result, I've kind of reduced my, um, my, uh,
1: teaching and academic research, uh, to make, make room for these things. Well, excellent. I'm I'm glad that uh, you still are doing a bit of that research and you, kind of as core to your your day job as well, doing lots of interesting different projects. Now we're at the BAI Conf in London uh, today. You gave a really interesting panel uh, just previously that we were talking about as as you came in. Um, Can you tell us just kind of some of the highlights from that, and then we'll kind of delve into some of these other things? Sure. So it was a panel
3: on institutional adoption. I think many people rightfully are looking at large institutions as really, you know, kind of an important group to come into the space to really drive uh, further, you know, uh, price increases and and further integration with traditional uh, financial services and other sectors of the economy and kind of what are the barriers to institutions, uh, you know, taking that step. Obviously, um, you know, regulation is, is something that gets talked about a lot, custody as well, you know institutions getting more comfortable with things like private keys and how those can be stored and managed, but also uh, I think some more subtler points around well, how do we value this new asset class you know I mean what kind of fundamentals should we be looking at you know, what kind of uh, you know, metrics are important? Uh, a lot of things remind me actually of the early days of the internet in the late 90s where, you know, we knew somehow these eyeballs were, were valuable, but it wasn't totally clear uh, exactly how we should value uh, some of these new, new
1: companies. Uh, so I think there's some, some similarities there. So uh, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting, and you'd mentioned this, was not only the valuation of, of kind of the market cap, I guess we could say, of a particular cryptocurrency, but Bitcoin in particular and some of the other coins, if I'm buying these OTC, I might pay more money for one that's just come straight out of a miner. A fresh Bitcoin, let's call it, rather than another Bitcoin. Or there may be processes we were talking about, government auctions of Silk Road uh, coins that may change the value. Have you seen anything around that? What kind of research are you hearing around that? And I know blockchain does a lot of Research in where these things have been, maybe.
3: That's right. No, it's a question that came up from the audience. I think uh, institutions are, you know, understandably, uh, you know, uh, a little unsure about, say, you know, taking possession of a coin that maybe was part of a hack or went through a dark web marketplace or has been through a mixer or something like this. Uh, this is what's known as taint analysis. Uh, so there's a number of firms in the space, uh, Chainalysis, Elliptic, and others. Uh, there's a new project called Project Titanium, which uh, is a collaboration between Interpol, other European law enforcement agencies, and a number of academic institutions like uh, University College London and others. So there's a, a lot of interest in kind of uh, chain analysis and understanding the history of these coins. And, and we don't see in, in the retail exchange uh, marketplace any... Noticeable like uh, pricing differences between, say, a clean coin fresh off a miner's block, and one that's tainted. Uh, but we are hearing, as it came up on the panel uh, in the OTC markets, uh, some requests from institutions uh, for clean coins. And, and even, uh, you know, possibly some different pricing um, that's, that's starting to emerge. We don't have a lot of data, unfortunately, on OTC markets. Uh, you know, some firms are reporting how much volume is coming through uh, OTC markets, but we don't have any kind of hard data on pricing differences.
1: I, I'd love to see that. If anybody listening uh, has worked on that, we'd love to, to be highlighted that. One of the questions I'd ask inside of that is not just kind of The criminal aspects that that people talk about within this, but Isabella Kaminska wrote an interesting article a few years ago talking about a lean problem, meaning at some point, because you can trace all these things, a court might come and say, "Okay, Colin had a Bitcoin, he sent to Garrick, but Colin stole that Bitcoin. Um, so Garrick has to give it back to, to us, the court, um, which means that Bitcoin for you becomes worthless. I mean, is that part of the equation, or is it purely down to this kind of taint of it's been through a dark market or something? It's
3: an interesting question, and and I think you know, there, you know, with all these things in crypto, we're we're wondering if if you know existing laws will apply. Uh, I think in the U.S., there's some uh, pretty clear rules around if something's stolen and you purchase it. You know, in terms of what what the uh, you know risk is around having to return that. Um, I think in many many cases, you don't have to. It's deemed to have been kind of passed on. Um, but this is not a, uh, an area that, as an economist, I, I'm an expert in. But I, I do think these are exactly the types of questions that many, you know, institutions are looking for clarity on before they come into this space in a major way. You know, do I only want to be holding, quote-unquote, clean coins? Uh, or I, can I be comfortable with uh, buying, you know, the Silk Road coins that the Department of Justice auction off? Because that detainted them, that cleansed them, or if they come through a regulated exchange that somehow cleanses them. I think these are all good questions that are still out there.
1: So I want to talk and kind of shift this into a discussion about economics. Um, So a bit of work that I've been doing, and I know you've done some work around how these things could be adopted as a a form of money in different countries. You put together an index on how likely a country may be or how ready it may be um, for these things. At the same time, there's been a lot of debate within the crypto community about um, is this transactional money or is this kind of some reserve money um, kind of typifying that has been, uh, I guess they call it um, hyper Bitcoinization at one extreme to um, Bitcoin cash and, and trying to use this in day to day transactions. What are you seeing as part of the research and looking inside of Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrency blockchains, right? So I think I think
3: early on, Bitcoin was much more of a currency in terms of how it was used. Uh, you know, in terms of the the share of say quote unquote currency transactions used for payments and so on, than an asset. But I think that's really changed. Uh, you know, in the last uh, you know eighteen months or more, uh, as as this has become more of what we call a crypto asset. Uh, people really excited about, say, the digital gold use case—the idea that this is something that can be like gold. It's scarce, yet it's you know much uh, easier to to transfer, to store, to divide up, and so on than gold. And and, and that's certainly what central banks. Uh, Mark Carney a few months back, you know, calling this a crypto—they've embraced that language, right? Referring to this space as crypto assets. So, so that's where things are, are, are now. However, I, you know, an area that I'm really focused on, uh, from a research perspective right now is this area of stable coins. Part of the reason Mark Carney said what he did, uh, said what he said is because of the volatility around things like Bitcoin and, and how that volatility undermines uh, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies as an everyday currency for payments for, for paying your rent. You know if the price can go down 50% mm-hmm. and you given month or 70% like it did from uh, December to January, you know that's going to negatively impact your ability to make your monthly rental payments. So inner stable coins. What is a stable coin? It's a cryptocurrency that's designed to be uh, price stable against something like say the US dollar um, through either having assets backing it or it's pegged in some way or there's some kind of algorithm. Uh, that's trying to match supply and demand, and, and with the stablecoin, one could argue, oh, you get the benefits, the programmability of a cryptocurrency. This is something that could still be used in, say, a smart contract, but you take away the uh, the issues around volatility that, say, undermine its use for, say, smart contract insurance, where people aren't looking to speculate on on the payout. They want to know that when their insurance contract
1: is is, is executed, they're going to get what they expect. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about that. So uh, before we get in I am advising a company called Sweetbridge that's looking at a stablecoin token. We mentioned that you're you're working with a company, you're advising yes. the AAA stablecoin. So people listening know where the context we're in. You told us a bit about what a stablecoin is, why a stablecoin is what are some of the examples we've seen? What have been the successes? What have been some of the failures that you've seen? Great. So, uh, you know, Tether, I think, is the most
3: well known stablecoin. What is Tether? Tether is an instrument that uh, has a peg to the US dollar and is purported to have one US dollar for each Tether in existence. There's been a lot of controversy around Tether, probably not enough time to get into all that here. But what has what Tether demonstrated? Well, there's clearly demand for, for Tether. It's, I think, today the number 12. Uh, ranked, uh, crypto asset, uh, by market value. There's over two billion of tether in existence. If nothing else showed that there's clearly a market for things like stable coins. Uh, why? Why would people want a stable coin? What's, what's wrong with the US dollar? Uh, and, and the answer to that is, well, a lot of people are looking to still have decentralized control, uh, over their currency, uh, and, and so Tether offers a way for people to still hold a cryptocurrency in a wallet and, and hold that maybe on an exchange as well, uh, without actually going into U.S. dollars and, and having to store those in a bank account. Uh, some exchanges don't, don't offer U.S. dollar uh, trading pairs with with Bitcoin, and so Tether is an attractive, or other stablecoins are an attractive option for for creating, you know, a synthetic fiat position without having to integrate U.S. dollar deposits and so on. So those are some of the motivations. Uh, but also, there's tremendous business, I think, cases as well around stablecoins, as I mentioned. You know, integrating these into smart contract based insurance and so on. That's all things I think the market is starting to look at and get excited about.
1: And outside of Tether, what what are some of the other projects, because Tether, I mean, as you said, it's got one-to-one, so it's got bank accounts that have dollars in them. They have a dollar balance, purportedly, that uh, mimics how many of these things exist on the, on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other methods that you've seen, or what does AAA do? Right. So,
3: so I think another really interesting, um, approach is, is what MakerDai is doing, uh, with, with kind of backing, still backing the stablecoin with an asset, but in this case, crypto assets. So Ether can serve as, uh, you know, kind of the assets that's behind the MakerDai stablecoin, uh, to, manage the volatility around that, you know, around, around Ether, basically, you have to over collateralize uh, DAI by, I think, about 150% roughly, um, so that the, you know, the DAI isn't liquidated as Ether's price kind of fluctuates. Um, so that's one disadvantage, arguably, of, of DAIs, you've got to put a lot
1: more, uh, you know, crypto asset in there to, to get this. So and, and the way that works, I guess, is you kind of have two tokens, you have the, the maker, let's call it an equity token, not in the it may be a security or not, it's an equity token. Um there are owners of these tokens and there are tokens that mimic the value of a dollar. They should be always worth a dollar somewhere near there. And um basically kind of the promise is you can go from that dollar back into this other one if the value were to go up or go down and move away from that. Um, so the idea should be there's an arbitrage there or Somebody taking advantage of that price difference, which should make sure that dollar's always worth the dollar. Basically, you have somebody with equity at the ready to buy your, your dollar token if it goes down or sell them if they go up, a bit like how an ETF works. That's
3: right. I, I think, you know, what a lot of these designs, including AAA, uh, are, are looking to leverage kind of this natural buoyancy in a market where arbitragers can come in, buy and sell to take advantage of these, these discrepancies. Um, I mean, we have seen prices, uh, fluctuate though with some of these stable coins. Uh, certainly Tether moves around a bit. Uh, uh, Dye's had, uh, some, some, some larger movements, typically pretty short-lived. I think the important thing to remember about the stablecoin space is this is all still very experimental. And, and we, uh, I don't think could call this a very mature, uh, wholly reliable instrument yet. Um,
1: so, I, I mean, I've, I've had a few questions about how, Stable coins work, and the first is yes, we we can talk about it moving away from a dollar, and there is some tracking error or, or movement away from a dollar that is acceptable, right? Um, and and anybody investing in these should be aware of the numerous risks. One of them is tracking error. At some point, though, if there's a big market movement or your collateral, the price of ether drops significantly, which is I think what kind of caused the die to move away was a, a demand for these tokens coupled with a fall in, in ether but you could find that you've run out of balance sheet, quote-unquote. Any thoughts about how you can kind of minimize that risk? Right. You know,
3: what good is a a stablecoin smart contract insurance apparatus if the stablecoin, let's say, gets liquidated out of existence, right, because the market collapses and and this mechanism is triggered and and all the stablecoins go away, right? So that's, that's a real concern. That's, I think, a big question, like, You know, if there is uh, kind of a downward spiral, can this be arrested in a way that doesn't lead to, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, the evaporation of of the entire (laughs) stablecoin? So so that's one open question. I think other questions are around some of the more interesting and ambitious designs, uh, you know, from projects like Basis and others that are looking to really kind of use an algorithm to match supply and demand and how effective uh, that will be. Very, very interesting project, you know, has attracted a lot of interest, including, um, you know, people like Stanley Druckenmiller who were involved with, uh, you know, Soros and breaking the British pound many years ago. Yeah. And that's one of the arguments the Basis Project for, puts forward for how they prevent kind of a Soros-style attack. Mm-hmm. Look, we've convinced Stanley, so uh, you should trust trust that we've got that figured out. But, so, yeah, this is all very experimental. Once these things get into the wild, uh, you know, we'll really have, I think, a much better sense about how robust they are. Um, you know, I mean. Also, the other thing is, a lot of these rely on on exchanges, right? That that you know, oftentimes during a big, you know, bull market, you know, go offline and 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 are down for hours, if not days. And 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 how does that work? You know, if you don't have the exchange infrastructure in place to uh, to you know manage liquidity and, and the trading that the, these systems require, so a lot of open questions. But at the same time, huge potential, I think, to solve a really big problem in the crypto space, which is the volatility issue. And if someone can crack that, um, many people, myself included, uh, see this as a major potential tipping point for wider adoption of crypto assets.
1: I mean, if nothing else, it's, it's and I think you, you kind of alluded to this, uh, it's very interesting economic petri dish uh, to be looking at these things. And I, I say that kind of uh, half-jokingly as well, because it is a lot of real money on the line, and people need to be very careful, and it's something we say on the show a lot, is don't put any money you're not actively ready to lose, um, and it's it's not an investment right now. It's a gamble on this petri dish maybe working, and some people have, have done well on that, and lots of people have done less well on it. So if you're looking at stable coins, definitely do your own research. Definitely spend time understanding how these things work, and um, no, only put in money that you're willing to lose, and no more. <laughs> I think that advice
3: is very sound, and I wholly support it.
1: <laughs> so uh, what are some of the other things that you're seeing looking ahead in the next 6-12 months? What to you says, right, cryptocurrencies or, or blockchains are on track or they're not on track? Right. So I,
3: I think the security token uh, area is quite interesting. And as we start to get more clarity from regulators around um, you know, what is a security in the space, what is not, big news last week uh, from the SEC that they don't deem Ether in its current state, at least to be a security. That that may be oversimplification, but, uh, you know, certainly the market interpreted that as, oh, sigh of relief. You know, uh, we're not trading an unregistered security currently on our exchange if we're trading Ether and CBOE and others said, oh, this paves the way to, you know, to Ether futures like we have Bitcoin futures. Having said that, uh, I think Marco Santori, who's president chief legal officer at, at Blockchain and others, have also interpreted the comments from the SEC uh, as indicating that a very large number of projects and things that some of which have yet to launch, uh, but may be traded already, uh, are securities. Yeah. And uh, you know, this could pose serious problems for, for um, you know, those projects and also the platforms that are maybe uh, trading these unregistered securities. So uh, it wasn't all... Great news across the board uh, by any means, but, but, you know, I think the crucial thing is, is there is further clarity starting to emerge, at least around some of these different instruments. And, and this is, I think, opening the door to this kind of you know, security token framework that I think many people are anticipating would be potentially a, a really big, big area. These are, you know, tokens, crypto assets that are securities and are registered and trade on, on you know, kind of registered exchanges or ATSs. And, and um, you know, once you uh, start thinking about, wow, what could we tokenize? You know, I just was listening to Jeremy Allaire's presentation. I mean, his theme these days is let's tokenize everything. Let's tokenize real estate. You know, the things that aren't Currencies aren't commodities, and our securities would be listed on regulated uh, securities exchanges. So you've seen, you know, companies uh, racing to uh, either acquire or build this kind of capability to offer security tokens, and I think that's certainly an interesting space
1: to watch over the next twelve months. It, definitely, a lot of investment, a lot of interest around it. I, I have my reservations about it, but let, let's come back just real quickly on the on the Ethereum being considered uh, a security or not. I, I would just like to point out that. Uh, it is a very senior person who expressed this from from the SEC during a conference. It isn't an official statement per se, which I, I believe Marco Santori pointed out on Twitter. But it does bring up a lot of interesting questions about how they're thinking, and I think it is a very good indication um, for people saying the coast is clear. Perhaps uh, consider that when you're when you're out trading and uh, investing, quote unquote, or otherwise putting money into it. Right, right. No, I I, I would uh, I would echo that. Thank you very much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you?
3: So uh, you can come to my website, uh, heilman.io, for uh, you know, links to research I've published and, and other you know, data and information. Um, I'm on Twitter. Not a huge user of Twitter, but I try to put a few things out there and uh, um, you know, come to the websites of the different projects we mentioned at the start as well for more information. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colin.
0: All right. Thanks, Colin and Garrick. You got away from your field and you'll be getting away from your field again at Blockchain Live soon, I'm sure. Um, We're 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. And we're doing it right now. Digital banking's only 1% finished, Colin.
1: Only 1%. What about
0: Blockchain? Oh, Jesus. Let's not go there. Um, We're taking the show live on the 26th of September to the London Olympia for Blockchain Live. We're going to be doing the show there live. We're going to be interviewing people. We've got our own little space.
1: Does that mean I have to be sober?
0: Um you know Relatively. Relatively sober. So if you want to go throw things at Colin G. Platt or you want to hear more about his field, um make sure you come down to Blockchain Live and you can find out more at blockchainlive.com. Simon will be giving away ETH. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you're a Twitter bot. I knew uh okay um and if you want 30 percent off your ticket price um you could you know, <laughs>
1: use the ether simon gave you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: use m11fs18 that's m11fs18 for 30 percent off your ticket price um and you can pay in any currency um that's fiat based that's also pounds so <laughs> scottish pounds <laughs> yes i believe
1: so how about uh, i don't know like ascension pounds tether pounds Does that exist? No. Why is there no stable coin in Pound? Why would there be a staple coin in pounds? Why wouldn't there be? Why would there be? Well, there's a euro-based one. You're a euro-based one. I am, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you like... That is, in
0: fact, the currency
1: they use in France. <laughs> uh,
0: if you like this kind of tired, exhausted, slightly undercaffeinated Simon Taylor, Colin G. Platt banter, remember to hit subscribe. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us out massively. Um, and uh, where can people find out more about you, Billy? Uh,
2: you can find me on Twitter at ville underscore or S. Colin G. Plot.
0: That's the one. how handy hashtag GSAS is back in the house I'm loving it a big thanks to the production team here at 11FS for putting up with me producer Patrick thank you for getting some show notes out and uh, repeating some lines in there and and throwing me all kinds of goodness and Michael Bailey our editor thank you sir for yawning your way through this one (laughs) (laughs) once again Uh, we love you sir and thank you for listening we will have a lot more Blockchain Insider next week goodbye for now